It's good to be with you all tonight. I've said it once, I'll say it again. I don't mind preaching to a house full of empty chairs. The ones that are here want to be here. And that's who I'd rather encourage and exhort from the Word of God tonight. Now, I'm just going to pretend tonight that these empty chairs are full of fake Christians. And I'm going to be preaching tonight to fake Christians. I know those of you here love the Lord. So don't, just let's just pretend like uh, we've got an audience. And I, I just, I didn't really know, I've been praying about what the Lord wanted me to share, and He gave it to me this afternoon. And it's really kind of a sad response to what I see traveling around America today. What, how the definition of a Christian has changed. Even in a few years I've been here on this earth. But uh, I'm thankful for every one of you that are here and you're here because you're faithful and you love the Lord. And that's the mark of a true Christian. And I want to encourage you for that. Kids, I'm going to tell you straight up, I call people out from the pulpit when they laugh and talk when I'm preaching. So if you guys want to be embarrassed, uh, my kids especially, if I see you laughing, I'll call you out by name, okay? This is serious stuff. So uh, I don't mind doing it. Um, and my kids, you know. You know better, right? Okay. Well, I thank you uh, for having us here. I pray what you heard this morning was a blessing. James is a good brother. I mean, he talks about how Ricky and I and our ministry blessed him, but he and his people and his church blessed us. You know, these folks gather once a week, and they pray all night as a church. Once a week they get together, and all night they're in prayer. They're in prayer for the, uh, the needs of their members. They're in prayer for their own boldness. They're in prayer for the churches in Bangladesh. And they pray for the church in America. And so when I see these things, I'm convicted at the lack of passion and the lack of commitment in my life. And uh, he talks about how we taught him, but really him and his brethren have taught us and encouraged us. So remember them. The persecuted church is real. Um, we need to remember them in prayer, and we need to emulate them when persecution comes to us. Um, I do want to thank the church, as I try to do every time I'm here, for your support of our ministry. Foolproof Gospel Ministries was founded in 03, and this church was the first church that came alongside and supported our work. You guys sent us out uh, back in those days when Brother Terry is here, and that's important. And so we don't come here for any other reason than to follow the biblical model, and that's to share with you guys what God is doing. And I hope you are confident and can trust that your support's being used to do exactly what Pastor Mike said. And I pray that you find us good stewards of that. Um, we've had a great summer uh, in ministry. We took our first team to northern India for Israeli ministry. Seven young people between the ages of 18 and 25 in a very difficult place. We had an incredible time. The Lord blessed our work. Twenty-five Hebrew New Testaments went into the hands of Israeli travelers, Jewish people. And that may not sound like much, but where the, a Jewish person is concerned, that's huge. Okay, We were able to share the gospel with people from 36 different nations that traveled through this area of the Himalayas. Uh, we were able to saturate Buddhist monasteries with gospel tracts and portions of Scripture in the local language. We did, they did have the, the, the police looking for us at one time. They knew someone was doing this, but God protected us. And we were able to disciple and train six, seven young people, six from America and one from India, 
in the work of missions all summer. And many of those have come back and are in college now or have gone on to jobs or whatever. One of those young men is actually packing his bags and he will be going back to Asia the end of this month. He had such a heart for missions. Single young man, uh, has no debt, has worked a good job, and he just fell in love with missions so much he wondered if he could go back over uh, and help Ricky out for five or six months in Nepal. And so we told him we'd buy him a one-way ticket over there, provide him a place to live, and he could stay as long as he wants. So it's an encouragement for us to see young people not only have an opportunity to do missions, but catch a burden and want to go back. So those are the things that have been going on. Ricky is back in Nepal. He arrived there two days ago. And this is the Israeli tourist season now in Nepal. So he'll be hitting the ground running. We've still got some earthquake relief monies we want to get out into the hands of believers that have needs. So uh, we're busy. I just got back from Alaska, had an opportunity to travel up there and do some preaching on college campuses and meet with some, some Christians. We were at a small church at the very top of North America, the farthest, most remote place you can go in our country, and there was a Bible-believing Baptist church up there. Good brethren. Some white, some Eskimo. There was a black family in there. Just a good mixture. And that just proved to me when Jesus told His disciples that they would be His witnesses, even to the uttermost part of the earth, that Jesus kept His promise. He's got witnesses. I don't know if, if Barrow's not the uttermost corner of the earth, I don't know what is. And even there, as dark as it is, Christ has a remnant. So, I just flew in yesterday. I may look tired. I may fall asleep. I may put myself to sleep preaching tonight. So, um, maybe an amen here and there will help keep me awake. But we've been busy, as always, and our, you know, our job is to be bold public witnesses, to get the Bible into as many hands as possible, to train other Christians in the work of evangelism, to work with nationals like James and Brother Bishnu, who we know love the Lord and who also love the Word of God and want to get it out. These brothers in Bangladesh, they, they get the Word out. You know, we help them purchase Bibles to, for evangelism, and they do it where, in a place where they're really risking problems. And these brothers, they've translated a couple of the tracts that I've written into their language, and these folks get the Word out. So be in prayer for them. As you support us, we're able, when needs arise, to support brothers like James and Brother Bishnu. We would rather it go straight into the hands of locals that we can trust uh, and not through a bunch of middlemen and organizations and all that. And so uh, just remember, when you guys support us, you're also supporting those we work with. And we don't work with people that aren't, that don't care about sharing the Word of God. So it's an honor to have James here. Um, but turn in your Bibles tonight. I don't want to talk about me. I'm, I'm a nobody and I'm content to be that way and to remain that way. But the Lord laid this on my heart. I run into a lot of people around America that say I'm a Christian. You know, if we looked at people that say they're a Christian, we would be a Christian nation. If you took all the American people by number and you interviewed them and asked them if they were a Christian, and they said yes or no, you would get a preponderance of yes answers. And based on those numbers, you would say, yeah, America's a Christian nation. The reason why it's like that is because the definition of a Christian has changed. I meet people all the time on the college campuses, in the streets, or even in the churches that say, would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person. 
I'm a Christian, I go to church on Sunday. Or I'm a Christian, but the Bible's just written by men. I'm a Christian, but the Bible's got contradictions. I'm a Christian, but things aren't the same as they used to be. These are statements I hear. And one of the most profound to me as a Christian, or someone that claims to be a Christian, but doesn't believe the Bible. Some say they don't believe the Bible. Others would say they do, but they live as if they don't. And it's as if there's a, there's a distinction being made between Christian and a Bible. Like you could be one without the other. And that's amazing to me. Um, so I think we almost need to revisit the definition of a Christian. We need to revisit it. And we, when we want to know what the meaning of a word is, where do we go? Where's the best place to go? Right to the source. We need to go where that word was first used. And my friends, Christian, it's not a religious word. Christian's a Bible word. That word comes from the Bible. So if a Christian is a Bible word, how is it that someone thinks they can be a Christian and not believe the Bible? Because a Christian's a Bible word. Without the Bible, you wouldn't even have the word Christian. So we have a place in the Bible where we see this word Christian for the first time. And it's used to describe people that acted a certain way, that said certain things, that lived a certain way. And they were first called Christians. Christian was not a term of endearment in the early days. It was an accusation. You were accused of being a Christian. So my question tonight to you is, do you identify as a Christian? And are, would you be... Would, it, would, it, would you be... Uh, how, how would I put this? Many identify as a Christian, but can you be accused of being a Christian? We should desire to be accused of being a Christian because that's what the first Christians were. They were at a place called Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey, the nation of Turkey. But turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 11. And I just want to read a few verses. Man, when we read the context of the first use of this term Christian... There's a lot in here. There's a lot of characteristics in here that we can use to evaluate what that term should mean in light of how it's used. Acts chapter 11, I'm going to start at verse 19 and I'm going to read through verse 26. This is talking about the early church. Stephen has been martyred. Persecution has arisen in Jerusalem. We have uh, Philip going out and taking the gospel to the Gentile Ethiopian eunuch. We have the amazing conversion of Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. We have Peter uh, going and preaching to the Gentiles and Cornelius in chapter 10. And then we get to um, chapter 11. Peter gives testimony of what the Holy Spirit did coming on the Gentiles as well. The early Jewish church is realizing that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's the context here. And then we get to verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word of none, to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus... 
And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So if we want to know what a Christian looks like, we need to pause and see what these disciples look like. What were they doing? What were they saying? Whatever they were doing and whatever they were saying gave the people of Antioch cause to accuse them of being Christians. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we saying, what are we doing that would give the people of this country cause to accuse us as being a Christian? I saw an article in the newspaper this week where apparently I'm, I'm sick of po- I'm already sick of politics and, and the election's not even close. Um, you know the Republican Party is a sick joke and the Democrat Party well it's just demonic, in my opinion, um, one man's opinion. But I saw an article this week there was some kind of a speech that uh, Donald Trump was giving, and a man in the crowd asked a question about you know, how Islam has infiltrated our country, and he made the statement that our, even our president's a Muslim. And uh, Mr. Trump didn't disagree with that. He didn't even address it. And so an article was written out, how in the world did you not rebuke this man? He said our president was a Muslim. Everybody knows Mr. Obama's a Christian. So the news media is spinning this thing. They're trying to a- attack Trump for not speaking up and correcting this man. And, and, and the whole bent of several articles was we have a Christian president. He identifies as a Christian. Let me tell you something, friends, that I'm 100% certain of. President Obama's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. Okay? He may say he is. A lot of people say they are to get votes. A lot of people in this country may say they're a Christian. But a Christian is what God defines as being a Christian. A Christian is what the Bible defines as being a Christian. And on the day of judgment, it's those definitions that matter. Our president's not a Christian. He acts a lot more like a Muslim than he does a Christian. And no Christian would think it's okay to murder unborn children. No Christian, as defined by the Bible, would think that a man could get married to a man. Okay, No Christian, as defined... uh, uh, by the Bible, would refuse to speak up when his brother and sisters in Christ were being persecuted in foreign countries or even here on American soil. Our president's not a Christian. Most of the people in this country that say they're Christian are not Christian if we go by the Bible's definition. And Christian is a Bible word. When we read these passages, we actually get a good character sketch of what a Christian is. Now, salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. Don't mistake me here. Salvation is not of works. But those who by God's grace 
by faith in Jesus Christ are saved look a certain way. They can't help it. They bear certain fruit. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. So we ought to be able to say that Christians should look and act a certain way. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Some people think if you act and, and look a certain way, then you can become a Christian. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you can come as you are, come as you are, no matter what your sin, come as you are, but you leave changed. You leave changed. So you can, people can say all day long, I'm a Christian. But God's definition matters. I just want to look at these verses here. This is the first use of the term Christian. It was in Antioch. And some of the things we see here give us a character sketch of a Christian. So we need to do what the Scriptures say and examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. And then understand that these are what characterize the first Christians. So we should strive to be like them. We need to strive to be like the first Christians in Antioch, not like the American Christian of today. Let's start at the beginning, verse 19. It says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution of Stephen. All of these people being referred to at the very end are called Christians at Antioch. We see that they, these first Christians were persecuted and they were scattered. Persecuted and scattered is what defined the first Christians. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 8 after the martyrdom of Stephen... In verse 4, it says, it talks about how the, the, Stephen was buried by, by fellow disciples and how Paul, from that event, wreaked, wreaked havoc on the church and began to persecute the Christians at Jerusalem. And in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says, Therefore they, that means the Jerusalem Christians, that were scattered abroad, does it say they went everywhere and hid in secret? No. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the Word. So the first Christians were persecuted and scattered, but they didn't run and hide like a cockroach when the light turns on. They went, were scattered preaching the Word. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if living godly means persecution, it follows that the absence of persecution means we're not living godly. Now, I understand there's different levels of persecution. There's persecution that James and his brethren face that we don't yet face. But trust me, my friends, if you're living for Christ, if you're a witness in the workplace, if you're a witness in your neighborhood, you are going to suffer. Okay? The Islamic ISIS terrorist is not the enemy in this country. It's a Bible-believing Christian. And if you go out and share your faith in public, you're going to suffer. We read stories all the time now about businesses who want to follow their Christian convictions. You know, if you're a Christian, get out of the wedding business. Just get out of the wedding business because you're going to suffer for it. Okay? Um, we have Christians or, or, or football coaches or anything connected with the school wants to say a prayer and then these, these fools from Wisconsin come out and try to sue them. I'm waiting for a Christian to just tell them to stuff it. I don't, you know, take their letter and throw it in the garbage can. I wish Christians had more backbone in America. Look at this judge in Kentucky who refuses to authorize marriage licenses for homosexual couples. Constitutionally, she's doing nothing wrong. But she took a stand. What happened? She landed in jail. 
So if we live godly, friends, we will suffer some sort of persecution. The early Christians, they were scattered. They didn't run and hide, though, but they became bold. Luke 6.26, Jesus says, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. American Christians want everybody to like them. We want everybody to speak well of us. But Jesus said, Woe unto you if everyone speaks well of you. That's the sign of a false prophet. So the early Christians were scattered and persecuted. Not everyone spoke well of them. So maybe that ought to be what we emulate. Let's love truth more than being light. Let's quit trying to have friends and be more concerned about being a friend. It says there in verse uh, 19 as well, um, it says they were... Uh, let me find my place here. They were scattered abroad upon the persecution of Stephen, and they traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch. Traveled as far as describes these early Christians. That means they went out. They didn't sit around waiting for the lost to come into them. They didn't sit in church buildings inviting people to church and waiting for the lost to come in. It says they traveled as far as. They went out. The first Christians were missionaries. What is a Christian definition? He's a missionary. Every Christian's a missionary. You know, I have people up in northern India where we work during the summer. I've had people ask me, are you a missionary? In their mind, a missionary is someone who pays people to convert to Christianity. And that's a filthy, wicked lie that Muslims and Catholics and Hindus accuse Christians of doing in James's country and Nepal. They say the Christians are paying people to convert. No true Christian has ever paid anybody to convert. How could you pay somebody to come to Christ? But it's a filthy, wicked lie meant to stir up trouble for the people. And the trouble James and his church are facing now is a result of the Catholics and the Muslims laying about those false accusations. Okay? Um, but... Every Christian's a missionary. And when people ask me that question, are you a missionary? I'll say, well, every Christian's a missionary. And they look at me like, whoa, I've never heard that before. But if we're Christians by definition of Acts 11, then we go out in some way. That doesn't mean everybody goes out to the ends of the earth. You know, if you can't go out, give that others can. If you can't give, pray that God will raise up labors. If you can go give and pray, do all three. But... Going out is a part of being a Christian. Whether it's going out in your neighborhood, going out down the street, going out to the end of the earth, all Christians are missionaries. Okay? Missionaries are Christians. Christians are missionaries. What's a missionary? An ambassador for Jesus Christ. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. The first ones that did that the very first ones that did that were accused of being Christians. It says here in verse 19, they, were, they uh, went as, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the Word. There's another characteristic of the first Christians. Preaching the Word. There are two things that American churchianity hates the most with regard to... Biblical Christianity. They hate preaching and they hate the Bible. 
Two things that American Christians are the most uncomfortable with are preaching and the Bible. But the first Christians preached the Word. What's the Word? The Word of God, the Bible. You know, in their day, they had all of the Old Testament and the New Testament was being written so that by the end of the first century, the early Christians had the Bible just like we have it upon the death of John. But they preached the Word. The two things the American church is most uncomfortable with. 1 Corinthians 1.21, the Bible says, uh, um, let me turn to it, I don't want to paraphrase it, I think it's better to quote it exactly. If I can find it here. 1 Corinthians 1.21. Um, this old Bible's falling apart, but I've got so many notes in it, I love it so much. I didn't take it with me to Alaska, I took my new Bible and I, I, I missed it. I missed it. I couldn't find my notes. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Guys, preaching, declaring God's truth, even if it's not popular, is a method God has ordained. Now, the world may not like it. Modern day church may not like it. The Southern Baptist International Mission Board, which is $21 million in debt, by the way. I heard this on the radio up in Alaska the other day. The IMB, which is supported by the cooperative program, is $21 million in debt. And they're going to have to let go several hundred missionaries in debt. Several hundred IMB missionaries need to be sent home anyway because they're not preaching the gospel anymore. But what a terrible testimony to the world. And this goes out over the radio waves. Terrible testimony, by the way. And it's because a lot of missionaries have gotten away from preaching the Word. And they're just taking up space. And it's not just a Southern Baptist thing. It's lots of mission organizations have been compromised by debt, by getting away from preaching the Word and into these complex strategies. And I was born and raised Southern Baptist. That's my background. My wife and I served with the IMB for a time, and it just makes me sad. Makes me sad. $21 million in debt. Preaching. It's a God-ordained method, and the early Christians preached. Okay? A lot of the churches nowadays, we got way too much teaching and not enough preaching. Okay? Very little preaching anymore. The world hates it. The Bible says... And in that same chapter, back in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. A Christian rejoices at the preaching of the cross. One that is not a Christian hates the preaching of the cross. It's foolishness. So you can call yourself a Christian all day long, but if the preaching of the cross makes you upset, and get you antsy, and get you angry, you're not a Christian. You're perishing. We actually uh, said this on one of the college campuses up in Alaska last week. We were at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and my dear brother, Pastor Sean Holes, he's actually come with me to church here. He uh, is a, a Baptist missionary that travels to college campuses and preaches the gospel, one of the hardest places in all the world to go. And he was preaching the cross Preaching the cross. We had a sign out there that just said one word, love. We like to put that up because everybody's love, love, love. And we can put up the love sign and they act like it says hate. But he was preaching the cross. And this 
self-professing Christian came up there who, sa- who said he represented a Christian campus group. I think it was Chi Alpha. And he came up there and tried to interrupt the preacher and shut the preacher down and tried to tell the preacher he was doing it the wrong way, that we were turning people away from the gospel, that we were doing more damage than good. And my friend looked at him and just quoted this verse. My friend, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that perish, but to those that believe it's the power of God. You're perishing. Because you see what I'm doing is foolishness, and I'm preaching the cross. You're not a Christian. You're perishing. You don't love the Lord. Don't come out here and tell me you love the Lord. If hearing the cross preached makes you angry, and boy, that, that, that young man got angry. And the proof of what was in his heart immediately came out of his mouth. And I won't quote what he said. It's not proper. But it's in there, and we know how to bring it out sometimes. Then we know what's really. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But to a lost person, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And we've gotten more opposition in this country from sharing the gospel on the streets from professing Christians than we have from atheists and homosexuals. Professing Christians. One difference between the foreign Christian like James's country, Nepal, India, and American Christians is not all foreign Christians have the boldness they need. Some are afraid in context of persecution and some of them don't go out like they should. But 100% of the Christians that we have met doing street ministry in foreign countries in Asia, 100% of the Christians, the local Christians, not the white Americans, I'm not talking about them, but 100% of the local Christians we've met when out preaching have been excited to hear the preaching of the cross, have been encouraged, and have thanked us for what we're doing. In America, it's the opposite. Very few like it. You know, I offer somebody a tract, and somebody turned to me the other day and says, I don't need that, I'm already saved. What kind of answer is that to a brother in Christ sharing the gospel? I said, well, take it with you. Christ says we're supposed to be witnesses. Be encouraged. Don't be angry. The problem is in America, many that say they're Christian aren't using the same dictionary that I use. You may use the same word, but you're not using the same dictionary. For me, the dictionary is the Bible. And these early Christians, the first people accused of being Christians, said they were preaching the Word. Churchianity today disdains the preaching. They disdain the Bible. But these Christians were scattered and they preached the Word. What does that mean? They carried the Word of God. They must have carried it. They must have believed it and they weren't ashamed of it. So by virtue of the fact that these early Christians preached the Word as they went, we know they carried it, we know they believed it, and we know they weren't ashamed of it. But we live in a country today where Christian pastors are making apologies for the Word of God. We're actually debating in Christian circles nowadays, we're actually debating whether homosexuality is okay when the Bible says it's an abomination. We're actually debating whether homosexuals can get married. I know people that... I have a family member that claims to be a Christian and he's an open homosexual. You're not any Christian, my friend. You're not a Christian. A homosexual identifies with sin. A homosexual by definition says, this is the way I am, God made me this way, and I'm proud of it. It's no different than a drunkard that says, this is the way I am, God made me this way, I'm proud of it. It's no different from an adulterer that says, this is the way I am, God made me, I'm proud of it. If you live in sin and you're proud of it, and you think God made you that way, whether you're, whatever sin it is, you're not a Christian. 
A lost person boasts in sin. A saved person boasts in Jesus Christ and hates his sin. I lived many years as a young man as a false convert. But when Christ finally saved me, what was different was my attitude about sin. The sin I once loved, I now hate. Yes, Christians sin, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But a Christian doesn't live in sin and boast in sin. Homosexuality, by its very nature, is an identification and a boasting. There's no such thing as a homosexual Christian. It's just not. I don't care what the world says. My dictionary is the Bible. Not President Obama, not the Democrat Party, not Southern Baptist Convention, not any of that. My definition is the Bible. And the Bible says if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. But people hate the Bible. That's why Christians say, I love Jesus, but the Bible is just the Word of God. And it's not just homosexuality. I don't mean to pick on that. You know, there's Christian people that go and abort their babies all over this country. I know people that work at the clinics, that work out there not working for the clinics, but outside trying to talk to these women that are going in to abort their babies. And it's amazing, particularly when these clinics are in the neighborhoods of Christian universities. It's amazing the number of students at these Christian universities that secretly show up there to murder their baby. We live in a country today where videos have been released of what's actually happening in this, these abortion clinics with these babies' body parts. And Christians are not even upset about it. But the early Christians carried the Bible, the Word of God, they believed it, and they weren't ashamed of it. Nowadays, most Christians don't carry a Bible. It sits on a shelf. They certainly don't believe it where it's uncomfortable, and they're certainly ashamed of it. Something's wrong. But we need to get back to the dictionary definition. Right there in verse 19, you know, we learn a whole lot about the early Christians, just that one verse. But at the end of verse 19 there in chapter 11, it says that they preached the word at first to none but the Jews only. Now, the first church, my friends, was Jewish. The first church was Jewish. The first believers, the first Christians were Jews. And I'll make sure I tell this to Israelis because they think the New Testament's a Gentile book and that it's anti-Semitic and that Jews hate... I mean, Christians hate Jews because in their mind, they think... Christians are represented by the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church has persecuted Jews throughout history just like they've persecuted Bible believers. And we get to tell them, no, true Christians actually love Jewish people. I like to say, well, you know, you're from Israel. I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to meet you because of your people. God used your people to give His Word to the world. Every author in this book was Jewish. Some people say Luke was a Gentile because his name was Lukas in the Greek, and Lukas is a Gentile name. Well, Peter is Petros in the Greek, and Petros is a Greek name. We know Peter was a Jew. It says in Romans that the Jew has the advantage because God used him to give his oracles or his word to mankind. So we know that the Bible was written by Jewish authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And because of Jewish people, we Gentiles can know the true God, and know Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. I met a Jewish lady in Anchorage, Alaska last week. There's a little falafel stand. It's a little food stand. It was owned by an Israeli family. And six years ago, Ricky and I went in there, and I met the owner. He's an older man named Avi. He's from Israel, and he fought as a soldier in some of Israel's wars. 
1967, 1974. And um, we got to share the gospel with him. And he was very open. And I gave him a Hebrew Bible. A Hebrew Bible, a Jewish Bible, is the same as our Old Testament. The Tanakh, they call it. It's the same as our Old Testament. The books are in a little bit different order. But it's the exact same as our Old Testament. And we talked about some places in the Old Testament where it shows Jesus to be the Messiah. It was a good encounter. So I decided I was going to be back in Anchorage. I wanted to see if this guy was still around. So I looked up online and his falafel stand was still in the, in the directory, the online phone book. So I decided to go over there. Well, when I went over there, he wasn't there. His daughter was working. His daughter was probably 40 years old, maybe 45. And I just told her, hey, I met your father a few years ago. I had something I wanted to give him. I had a Hebrew New Testament I wanted to give him this time. And um, I just began to talk to her. And she's from Israel as well. And she is living uh, somewhere else in the lower 48. But she's up there because her mother has cancer. And it looks really bad. And so she was telling me this. And I just explained that I would got to meet her father. That we, we're Christians and we love Jewish people. You have a lot of enemies around the world, but you have friends too. And so I wanted to give your father this New Testament. I told her, I've carried it with me. I was in Israel last year, and I carried it with me all over Israel. And, you know, the New Testament is a Jewish book, and I shared with her the gospel. And she told me about her mother, and I, I talked about how the early Christians, the Jewish Christians, would pray for one another when one of them was sick. And I said, can, can we pray for your mother right now? Just like James talked about, and James prayed for... Pastor Mike's wife this morning. And so I just, we just uh, put hands on her and prayed, and she was crying. She was weeping. And she says, I've never met people like you before. My, I, I've got to tell my father about this. And so it was an awesome opportunity to follow up and to share Christ with another Israeli. And then, stupid me, after we prayed with her, I walked out of the restaurant and forgot to pay for my meal. <laughs> God reminded of me about an hour later. I'm like, oh man. So I picked up the phone and called. I was like, her name was Diana. I said, Diana, this is Jesse. I said, I came and prayed for you. And then I walked out of the restaurant and forgot to pay for it. I'm so sorry. And she's like, oh, we were talking about God. And I forgot too. And I said, well, I'm going to come back. You know, if you can wait a little bit. I've got to go preach tonight at the church, but I'll stop by there. So I stopped by and got to encourage her again. And it was a blessing. It was a blessing. And I was able to, you know, say to her, look, I don't know what you've been told, but let me show you. And I opened up to the very first verse of the New Testament. I like to do this with, with Jewish people. I opened up the verse, first verse of the New Testament. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And she's like, so this is a Jewish book. David, Abraham. And she was uh, amazed. And you could tell she wanted to read more. But these early Christians went to the Jews first because they were Jewish. What does that tell us? It tells us that they were first faithful witnesses to their own people. The earliest Christians were faithful witnesses to their own people first before they went out to other peoples. We've got a lot of Christian missionaries on the field today who were never faithful to share the gospel when they lived here in America. And they think that they'll be faithful when they go overseas. And what happens is they go over there, they get a comfortable place to live, and they're being supported basically just to live in another country. And they don't know how to share the gospel. They don't share the gospel because they never did it faithfully in their own Jerusalem. 
Jesus said His disciples would be their witnesses first in Jerusalem, their own backyard, then Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. Friends, if we won't be faithful here to our family, to our lost friends, we'll never be faithful to the lost world. But these first Christians preached to their own people first. The key to being a successful or a a useful missionary is to be faithful right now. I've had people talk to me, I think God's given me a heart for missions. What do I need to do? First thing you need to do is start opening your mouth and sharing the gospel right here. Don't make the mistake I did. My wife and I went to Nepal the first time. You guys remember this. The church gave me a Bible and everybody wrote their names in the front. I still use that study Bible. But I wasn't a very faithful witness here in America before we went to Nepal the first time. And we weren't over in Nepal very long. The Lord brought us back. And He wouldn't let me return to South Asia for quite a few years because He needed me to learn that until I'm faithful here, I won't be faithful there. And if I'm faithful there, it's because it started here. The first Christians preached in the beginning to the Jews only. They took the gospel to their own people. Sometimes it's harder to share the gospel with lost family and friends than it is strangers on the street. I'll be the first to say it. You guys look at me, oh, he preaches on the street, he's so bold. Maybe. Guys, going and knocking on doors in my own neighborhood, (laughs) talking to my own family members, that's hard. And I've not been faithful all the time, but the first Christians were. That's a lesson we can learn. That's all there in verse 19. These people were called Christians first at Antioch. Who were these people? Well, they were persecuted and scattered. They traveled and went out. They preached the Word. They were faithful to their own people. Verse 20, Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake. They spoke. 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul says this. He's quoting the psalmist. You know, there's all kinds of quotations from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those guys were preaching the Word. Paul quotes the psalmist and said, We therefore having this testimony, we believe, we, we, we believe, therefore we speak. Paul says, I have believed, therefore I speak. Believing is tied to speaking. You know, there's a train of thought that's made, it away, made its way around the American politically correct church that says, everywhere you go, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Those are the words of St. Francis of Assisi, which was a Catholic monk. And it's not biblical. It's not biblical. You can't preach the gospel without words. And the early Christians, when they went, they spoke. Now, our lifestyle and our actions ought to back up and verify what we preach. But you can't preach without speaking. You can't share the gospel without opening your mouth. And that's the hard part. But these first Christians were those that spake. It says they spake unto the Grecians. Now the Grecians, the first Christians were Jews, and so they were faithful to preach to the Jews first, but then they started sharing the gospel with the Grecians or the Gentiles. So they were not only faithful to witness to their own people, it says they were faithful witnesses to other tribes, other tongues, other nations. 
When was the last time you opened your mouth and shared the gospel with somebody that's not your race? That's not your ethnic group? That doesn't speak English as their first language? Or are we just comfortable surrounding ourselves with people that look like us and talk like us? That wasn't the first Christians. The first Christians spoke to the Gentiles, other tribes, other tongues, other nations. They had a heart for missions. What's a Christian? A Christian is somebody that has a heart for missions. Guys, America today is a melting pot. Now, we may have reasons for not liking the situation in this country for, with illegal immigration. I have plenty of reasons not to like what is happening in my country. I know what the designs of Islam are for this country. I know what the designs of Mormonism are for this country. I know what our president and our leaders are trying to do to this country by letting anybody come in here. They're trying to destroy any Christian identity. I understand that. But there's nothing I can do about it. As a Christian first and an American second, however, I can see this situation as an incredible opportunity. Friends, there are people from all nations right here in America now. You don't have to go to the end of the, end of the world to reach them. They're here. Yes, what's happening is unfortunate. Yes, we should vote for leaders that protect our borders, our language, and our culture. But in the end, we can't change it. Early Christians saw these things as opportunities. And they should be for us. You know, I've met people from nations here in America that are here studying at universities. I couldn't go to their country and preach the gospel. I'd be thrown in prison or killed. But yet, they're here, and I can share the gospel with them openly. We've got a lot of... Mexicans that live in my area of western North Carolina, and most of them are here illegally. There's no question about that. They're here illegally. Praise God. I love speaking Spanish. I've got Spanish tracts. I can share the gospel with them. Because back in their country, it's a Catholic country. And most religion or Christianity down there is Catholicism. And they persecute Bible believers. Just like we heard from Brother James this morning, a lot of the problems they're having, they're going to lose their church building that they rent and they pay money for because the Catholic priest told the building owner, who's a Catholic, not to rent to them anymore. And then the Muslim cleric went around and told all of the businesses in the area and all the homeowners in the area, don't rent to these people, they're Christians. So you've got the Catholics and the Muslims working together to persecute the Bible believers. That's what they do. But if they're here... We can share the gospel with them. If the Saudi Arabian is here, I can preach the gospel to him. In his country, I'll go to jail. I won't even be able to get into his country. The early Christians saw the preponderance of lots of people of lots of groups in the Roman Empire as an opportunity to share the gospel. They went to the Jews first, but then they spoke to the Grecians. Are we those that will love people enough to tell them the gospel and see the melting pot of America as an example or an opportunity to do foreign missions right here at home. First Christians would have seen it that way. And that's the definition that matters. They spake unto the Grecians doing what? Preaching the Lord Jesus. This was the centrality of the Gospel. The first Christians preached the Lord Jesus. That was the central message they carried. What is the Gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, Paul says, This is the Gospel 
that I have preached unto you, as it was delivered unto me. Jesus Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures. He was buried according to the Scriptures. And on the third day, He rose again from the dead and was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses. That's the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was the central message of these first Christians. Is that the central message of the church today? It's not the Gospel anymore. If the Gospel isn't the center of your message, maybe you're not a Christian because the first Christians were those that preached the Lord Jesus. Paul described the Gospel in Acts 20.21 as repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For the early Christian, for those first accused of being Christians, Jesus Christ was at the center. His death, burial, and resurrection. Could we be accused of being Christians such as this? In verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. The fruit of their ministry was people, not platforms. The fruit of their ministry was converts, not proselytes. People that believed. That word believe means to trust. We've changed that definition as well. We think believing means just assenting to some facts. Those that believed as, a, as the fruit of their ministry weren't people that just repeated a prayer. They weren't people that just acknowledged some facts. They were those that believed and turned to God. The word turn or the action of turning involves two... It's two-directional by definition. If I turn to something, by default I've turned away from something else. So these first Christians made converts who turned to God. If they turned to God, that means they turned away from something else. They turned away from sin. They turned away from their false religion. They repented. And that's repentance. To repent means to turn. To turn from serving sin toward God. The things of God. And if you've been born again, you know of this. It wasn't until I repented at age 18 that God saved me. I turned away from loving the world, loving my sin, and turned toward God. Jesus said, except you repent, you will perish. And the churches today don't preach repentance anymore. It's come as you are, stay as you are. Everything's okay. Jesus says, come as you are. The worst of sinners, the vilest of offenders, come as you are. Be saved. Leave changed. And that, those were such the converts of these early Christians. Their fruit was people, not platforms. You know, this is the fruit of a true prophet. You know how somebody's a true prophet or a true preacher? The fruit is that people repent of sins and turn to God. Jeremiah, let me, let me share a passage from Jeremiah real quick. I know it's a little bit late. If I were in Bangladesh at James Church, I would have about three or four hours to preach before they would start getting a little tired. Um, so I'm going to try to remember I'm here in America. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 21 and 22. God says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. 
So God's saying, you've got all these preachers. I didn't send them. If they'd been sent from me, then the people they preached to would have turned from their sin. How do you know that a prophet is from God? When he preaches the Word of God, people turn from sin. They don't rationalize sin. They turn away from sin. They don't make excuses for it. That's the fruit of a true prophet of the Lord or of a true ministry. True ministry ought to result in people forsaking sin and turning to God. And that was the ministry of these first Christians. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. If they turned unto the Lord, that means they repented and turned away from their idols and their false religions and their sin, lives of sin. Verse 22, Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. Tidings. The first believers had a public testimony. There were tidings that went into other cities about what they were doing. A public testimony. Is your testimony public? Do tidings of your Christianity get into the ears of your co-workers and of the people that you interact with in your community? Tidings is what described the life and ministry of these first disciples called Christians. If we're Christians, we're not living in secret, friends. And these were persecuted brethren. But there was a public testimony that made its way back to Jerusalem. And that was before the days of internet and texting and, and cell phones and all that. Tidings made it all the way back to Jerusalem about their ministry. Public testimony. And then it says here that when the Jerusalem church heard, they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. First believers sent out missionaries. The first church at Jerusalem sent out missionaries. Why aren't our churches sending out missionaries today? That's what the first Christians did. They sent out missionaries. Verse 23, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad. Barnabas was glad. The first missionary sent out by the church of Jerusalem came and found other Christians preaching the gospel. Did he stop and say, you're doing it all wrong? You're turning people away. This is not the right method. No, he was glad. You see, Christians by definition rejoice at the testimony, labor, and preaching of other believers. If we're believers, we rejoice when we see a brother handing out tracts on the street or a sister sharing her faith or a family bowing their heads in a restaurant to thank Jesus for their food, that ought to make us glad. Those things made the first missionary sent by the Jerusalem church glad. It says he was glad and he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. The word exhort is not the word encourage. We are to encourage one another. But the Bible tells us to exhort one another. What does exhort mean? It means to advise, to warn to caution. That should be part of our ministry. To exhort each other daily. Warning about sin. Cautioning each other when we see each other gossiping and doing things that bring division to the church. Exhortation, exhorting one another, was a ministry of the first believers and they didn't have thin skin. We're too thin-skinned here in this country. We need to grow some leathery spiritual skin to where we can exhort one another and we can suffer the word of exhortation. In fact, in Hebrews 3.13, Paul tells the believers 
that we are to exhort one another daily lest any be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what, that should be our ministry. If we see a brother and sister in sin or, or gossiping or sowing discord in the church, then we need to love them enough to exhort them so that they're not hardened by the deceitfulness of this sin. We're to exhort one another. In, in chapter 13 of Hebrews, it says that we are to suffer the word of exhortation. So not only are we to be those that exhort our brethren, warn them, caution them when we see them in sin, but we need to suffer the word of exhortation and we need to be those that listen when our brother comes to us because we're not representing Christ as we should. But we're so thin-skinned in America, we don't want to offend anybody. We keep quiet and when someone tries to talk to us, we get offended and get angry and we gossip about them. Shouldn't be. Gossip wasn't in the church where the believers were first called Christians. It was dealt with. Paul dealt with it. And the true believers exhorted one another. The first missionary exhorted these Christians, warned them, cautioned them. That should be us. When our brother or sister comes to us with a concern, instead of getting offended, suffer the word of exhortation. And ask the Lord what He could be teaching us. If we see our brother and sister in sin, or struggling, love them enough to go to them. Because we want them to walk with the Lord. True love bids a warning doom to children that play in the freeway. If we love the lost, we'll warn them of hell. If we love our brother and sister in Christ, we'll warn them about God's discipline and about the consequences here on earth of living in sin and sowing discord. And we'll listen when they come to us. That was a mark of the earliest Christians. They exhorted one another. I'll try to hurry here. Verse 24, Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost. What does it mean he was full of the Holy Ghost? It means he was a bold witness. Acts 4.31, the believers are being persecuted in Jerusalem. This is before they were scattered. They came together when Peter and John were released from prison and they realized there was persecution. And it says they prayed. They didn't ask God to take away the persecution. They asked God to give them boldness. And then in verse 41 it says, the place where they were gathered was shaken and the believers were filled with the Holy Ghost. And then the very last phrase of that verse tells us what that looked like. And they all spake the Word of God with boldness. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Acts 4.31, what does that look like? Speaking God's Word with boldness. If Barnabas was full of the Holy Ghost, he was a bold witness. The early Christians were bold witnesses. What is a Christian by definition? He's a missionary to his own people and to other people. And he's a bold witness. That's a Christian by definition according to the Bible. He was full of the Holy Ghost and of faith and much people was added unto the Lord. You see, the first Christians weren't concerned with people... They were more concerned with people coming to Christ and getting saved as opposed to people coming to their church. More people were added unto the Lord, it says. It doesn't say they were added to the church. These people were concerned about folks coming to Christ and being saved. And they were content to let God grow the church. They were content to let God grow the church. The Lord added. Today we're all concerned about getting, you know, growing. We've got to get people in our church. We've got to recruit them. We've got to advertise. I saw a 
a billboard on the way down here this morning on Interstate 40. It was a local church advertising their services and inviting people on the interstate to come. I don't understand that. The church ought not be in the advertisement business. Church is made up of believers. Church is not for the lost people. Church is supposed to go out and win the lost. And church is where believers are discipled. Why do we want to fill our church with lost people? If we fill our church with lost people, then the devil will get a foothold in here and the lost people will start dictating what's preached and what's not preached. Church ought not be advertising. The early churches let God grow the church. They knew that results were God's. They were called to preach the gospel, to disciple one another. God would grow the church. And friends, if we be content to let the Lord do that, then we can look out over these pews tonight not be dis- not be discouraged. I'm not discouraged by the empty chairs here tonight. Because it's not my job to grow this church. It's God's problem. Our job is to edify, teach, and disciple the ones that are here. That was the mindset of the early church. The Lord added. They were concerned with people coming to Christ, not people filling their pews. We ought to want to see the salvation of the lost. God will fill the pews according to His will. Verse 25, I'm almost done. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Barnabas heard about Saul's conversion. So Barnabas went to seek him out to disciple him. These early people that were first called Christians sought out other believers to disciple. When's the last time you sought out a young believer to disciple them? If that's not a part of our ministry, then we're not in balance. My ministry is evangelism, preaching the gospel. But discipleship goes with that. That's why we've invested in the lives of young men like Ricky. The Lord put Ricky in our lives, my life to disciple him. Now look at him. He's a full-time missionary living in India and Nepal. He disciples me now. The The students become the teacher and the teachers become the student. That brother's bold. I learn from him all the time. But, you know, we ought to seek people younger in the faith. One of the ministry of the older women in the church, according to uh, the New Testament, is to seek out the younger women and disciple them. That ought to be part of your ministry as a woman in the church. And we've neglected that. We ought to seek out young men and disciple them. That's a big part of Pastor James's church. And it's what characterized these early Christians. And then in verse 26, And when he had found him, when Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church. Friends, the earliest disciples that were accused of being Christians, they didn't meet. They didn't just meet at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. They assembled themselves together. They came together. They desired to be with one another. Their fellow church members were their closest friends. Friends, are your brothers and sisters in Christ that attend this church with you, are they your closest friends? Or is the only time you see them on a Sunday morning? Are they the people you turn to for advice and prayer? That's the way it was with these first disciples called Christians. They assembled together. They didn't just meet. In Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us the importance of assembling together. Paul says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, 
but exhorting one another. There's that exhortation ministry again. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The darker this country becomes, the darker this world becomes, it means that Christ's coming is nearer today than it was yesterday. And that means that our assembling together is even more important. The darker things become, the closer Christ's coming approaches, we ought to assemble together and worship. I know these pews are empty, but those of you that are here and are faithful, cherish the assembling together with the saints. Your church brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters that are part of your local church body, your pastor, these ought to be your closest friends, even closer than family that's lost. Assemble here. Don't look at it as just going to church or just meeting. True Christians assemble together. They don't just meet to do the religious thing. It says they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. They taught each other. They taught the people that assembled together. The church exists to teach the brethren. The church is for the saved. It's not for the lost. The church is a place where the brethren are edified so that they can go out and reach the lost. The ministry of the church is the believer. The ministry of the believer is the lost. We've got it all jacked up in this country. All messed up. All messed up. If we understood that, then we wouldn't try to be advertising and getting the lost to come to our church at the expense of not being able to disciple the believers. I'm almost done, I promise. Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, he's talking about the church and the gifts given to, spiritual gifts given to leaders of the church. Paul says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The pastor, the teacher, the apostles. Apostles were those that actually interacted with the Lord Jesus here on earth. So biblically, I don't believe there are apostles anymore. But we could say missionaries. Because apostle means sent. One who was sent. And by definition, a, min- a missionary is one who's sent out. Now, I look at apostles uh, as, defi- as defined by those who actually walked and talked with the Lord Jesus. That's what made them apostles. But today we have missionaries, those that are sent. Okay, the purpose of these primarily is not the lost. It's to edify and build up the church, the saints, even the evangelist. When I look at this passage, you say, well, you have the gift of an evangelist. It's your job to win the lost. No. The gift of an evangelist here is defined as someone who perfects the saints, does the work of the ministry, and edifies the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means those that have the gift of an evangelist, such as myself, my job is to teach you how to share your faith so you go out and reach the lost. All Christians are to do the work of of evangelism. And those with the gift of an evangelist are first to model that and be bold witnesses themselves and train up other believers to do that. So the pastor, the teacher, is here for you. That's his primary job. It's not the lost. The ministry of the church is the believer. The ministry of the believer is the lost. And we've got it so backwards. 
that our churches are full of lost people. We have lost people behind the pulpits on Sunday morning in America. And the gospel's not being preached because we've forgotten who's, who, the, what the ministry of the church is primarily for. It's for the believer, but not these early Christians. They taught one another. They didn't advertise. The Lord added unto the church. And in very, at the very last, they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Christians were disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. They made disciples. It's not enough to make converts. We can't make converts anyway. God saves people. But He's called us to make disciples. That's why follow-up is so important. Follow-up is so important. We had the great privilege this summer of seeing an entire Ladakhi family. Ladakhis are Buddhist, and it's very hard to be a Christian. If you're a Christian in Ladakh, you're persecuted. And there's no churches there that aren't compromised. But we saw a family leave Buddhism and come to faith in Christ. And they wanted to be baptized. So we decided to go talk to them, and Ricky told them straight up, like, I don't know if you're serious about this or not, but to be baptized is a public testimony. And if you come to Christ, you never go back to your Buddhism. You never go back to those things. And your baptism is a public testimony of that to the world, and you may suffer persecution, and you're going to be hated by the people of this community, and they may make you leave. You need to understand these things. And they said, we want to follow Christ. It was a mother, a father, and a teenage son. There were two smaller children that weren't old enough to understand. Hadn't reached, I don't believe, an age of accountability. But the mother, the father, and the son were baptized. We went out to the Indus River. It was freezing cold. Indus River is where the British got the name India for Nepal. I mean, for India. It's one of the primary rivers in that part of the world, and that's where the nation of India gets its name. But we, we had to crawl through the briars and the sea buckthorn berry bushes to go out there. It's a secret spot where nobody could see. About seven years ago, there were some Buddhist monks that came to faith in Christ and were secretly baptized there. So we had this team with us that came over to preach the gospel to the Jewish people, but they got to see a Ladakhi family get saved and baptized. And we went out to that place and we saw a young brother. We, we baptized a young brother there last fall when I was there in November. And the Lord let us baptize a family. But the ministry didn't stop there. We're called to make disciples. Didn't stop there. And it's been a joy to see the brother we work with there, Brother Gulzar, continue to disciple them. We would have Bible studies on Sunday mornings while we were there with our team. And they would come. And we got to observe the Lord's Supper with these believers. So we got to teach him about the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they're just hungry to learn more. And the, the, the Ladaki brother we know there and a couple Christians have been discipling them. And so, Christians make disciples and they care about discipleship. And that's got to be a part of any ministry. Friends, if somebody accused us of being Christians, like these first Christians at Antioch, would we be guilty as charged? Would you be guilty as charged if the accusation of a Christian were laid upon you today? Would you be found guilty? Would you be found guilty? I hope so. 
the first people that were called Christians. Christian, a Bible word. I don't care what the world defines today. Our president's not a Christian. If we look at this definition, he doesn't do any of these things. Most of the people that identify as Christians in this country don't do any of these things. Bill Clinton used to say he was a Christian and he had the photos taken with his big Bible on his knee. Give me a break. Jimmy Carter, when he ran for president, identified himself as a born-again Christian. That man hates Jews and he hates Israel. No born-again Christian hates the people of Israel. You don't love God and hate the people from which Messiah came. There's no such thing as a born-again Christian that hates the church either. You don't love Jesus and hate His bride. A Christian is a Bible word and the Bible defines it right here. What were the earliest people accused of being Christians doing? They were persecuted. They were scattered. They went out. They preached the Word, which means they cherished the Word of God and they cherished preaching. They were faithful witnesses to their own people, the Jews. They spoke. They didn't keep their mouths shut. They were faithful witnesses to people of other tribes, tongues, and races. They preached Jesus Christ, Him crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead. The gospel was the center of their message. Their fruit was people, not platforms. People who believed and repented. They had a public testimony so that tidings went out as far as Jerusalem. They sent out missionaries. The first church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas as a missionary to Antioch. They were glad when they saw the labor, testimony, and preaching of other believers, even if it didn't look exactly like theirs. You know, the message is what is important. A ministry may not look exactly like mine, but if they're preaching the gospel, praise God, I'm glad. They exhorted and advised and warned and cautioned each other. Exhortation was a part of their ministry. They weren't thin-skinned. Full of the Holy Ghost means they were bold witnesses. They weren't concerned with people coming to church. They were concerned with people coming to Christ and content to let the Lord grow the church. They sought out other believers to disciple. They assembled themselves together. They taught one another. They were disciples of Jesus Christ and they made disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible has lots to say about what a Christian is throughout the New Testament. But in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And these are the things those first believers did. These are the things they valued. This is who they were. Are we guilty as charged? I pray so. Let us strive to emulate these first disciples called Christians. And the rest, we'll let, we'll let God take care of the rest. Leave it up to Him. Amen? Continue to pray for us and our ministry. We appreciate your support. Pray for Brother James. He's going to be sharing at a few more churches in the area. He'll be with me the rest of this week. Then he'll be with a Baptist church in Columbia, South Carolina next week. Then he's coming back to us. Um, we're going to preach at a missions conference in Western North Carolina. Then we're going on the road for about... Two weeks. We're going to visit some churches that support this ministry. We're going to do some preaching on the streets, a few college campuses. James's daughter lives with a fine Christian family in Minnesota that support our ministry, and she's living there. And 
going to be going to school here in America. And so James is going to get to spend some time with his daughter. And so we're just praying that while James is here, he's a missionary in America. We need missionaries. James ain't here to go to churches and... He wants to encourage you all, but he's not here to go to churches and get money. God takes care of him and God will provide. And we need to support people like this. He's here to be a missionary. We need missionaries. And if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. So pray for us. Uh, Brother Ricky, pray for him in Nepal. It's time for the Israelis to start pouring in. And we're hoping they'll come. We're hoping the earthquake doesn't keep them away. Uh, Their numbers were down in Ladakh this year because of the earthquake, but we still had a lot of opportunity. And we're just going to continue trying to serve the Lord and pray for us that we will emulate the example that I've preached tonight. I'm preaching to myself, friends, not to you only. I'm preaching to myself. And it's a nice reminder. Pray for our country. And let's shine bright as the days get dark.